Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for all the truths that we've sung this morning about Christ as our King. Uh, he is exalted. He is uh, the newborn King, or uh, He uh, is, uh, as we remember Him around Christmas time, and uh, He is the Servant King who came to give His life for us. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful for uh, the work of Christ um, and for the fact that He reigns uh, forever and He will come back to reign over the uh, the uh, renewed earth um, and that we as his people will be there and serve him. Uh, Lord, please, uh, uh, as we study your word this morning, please uh, refresh our, our hearts and uh, give us a deeper appreciation for who Christ is and what he's done for us. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're going to uh, do a few sermons in in the start of Matthew's Gospel uh, in the lead up to Christmas this year. Uh, and today we're going to start with the first 17 verses of Matthew. Uh, and it's uh, the genealogy of Jesus. <coughs> uh, so Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Uh, you could uh, be forgiven for thinking that that's a pretty boring way to start a book. Um, I will admit to having thought that in the past, um, and at least once having skipped over this passage and 
reading Matthew as though it starts at verse 18. I think certainly if, if you or I were writing a book about the life of Jesus, or any book really, it probably wouldn't be the way we'd start a book, to have a long list of names of especially people that aren't going to come up ever again in the book. But this passage does serve a very important function. Um, And I want to illustrate that by talking about the Lord of the Rings. Who here is familiar with the Lord of the Rings, whether the books or the movies? Uh, The Lord of the Rings um, is a series of books by J.R.R. Tolkien, and one of the main characters is Aragorn. Uh, For most of the story, Aragorn is the leader of the sort of group of heroic adventurers that we follow as the as the story goes along. Uh, And a number of uh, times in the story, uh, we're told a bunch of stuff about Aragorn's family history. Uh, A lot of the character... uh, Yeah, that's because a lot of the character of Aragorn and, and what he has to accomplish in the story is based on his family history, what his ancestors did. Uh, some, sometimes he's uh, referred to as Isildur's heir. Uh, and, and that sort of tells us that because of who Isildur was uh, and what he did, that sort of informs who, who Aragorn's going to be. That title brings significance to him. Uh, and in the main story, we do sort, you sort of read and you get a, a bit of an idea of what's happened to, to bring us to this point of what Aragorn's family is like. Uh, but in The Lord of the Rings, there's a whole bunch of, of, of background notes from, from Tolkien and, uh, and books like The Silmarillion, which is a, just a big book of, of stories that come before the main story. Uh, and in those things, you find a whole lot more stories about who this character of Aragorn, who his descendants are and, and what they mean. Um, and, and all this informs, again, who Aragorn is and what he has to accomplish in the story that follows. And that's similar to a similar sort of thing that Matthew's doing here. He's reminding us of the, the ancestors of Jesus, the stories that led up to Jesus that inform who he is and what he's going to accomplish in life. It's not so much a list of names as a list of stories. Uh, In fact, it's a story with a beginning, a middle and an end. Or the end is sort of a a lead into the main story that Matthew is is recording. It's it's like a recap, like when you watch a TV show and there's like a previously on, in previous episodes, this is what happened. This is sort of what Matthew's doing. He's He's... He's pointing us back to all the people that came before, all the Old Testament stories that lead us to where Jesus is. Uh, and that's how we're going to, what we're going to look at this morning is all the stories uh, that Matthew's alluding to that inform who Jesus is. Or not all of them, but for the sake of time, the, the most salient ones there. Uh, but I just want to get a couple of things out of the way first before we get too stuck into that. Um, these points aren't sort of really critical, but some of you will probably be like me, and if I don't address them, they'll be burning questions. So I just want to address them now. Um, the first one is, 
You may have heard or you may have noticed that the book, that the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke don't completely match up, which kind of doesn't really make sense if they're all following father-to-son lines, right? Uh, now, there's a couple of possible explanations for why that is. Um, it could be to do with the fact that Jesus was technically Mary's son and not Joseph's, so uh, Luke could have been following the... Um, that sort of physical line, lineage. Um, And there were also sort of uh, family laws that the Jews had um, from the Old Testament that could have caused anomalies in... in, Well, not not so much anomalies, but unusual uh, things in legitimate genealogies. But basically, the two authors chose different routes through legitimate genealogies to highlight different aspects of who Jesus is. So Matthew was emphasising Jesus' right to the throne, so he follows the kingly line. Uh, Luke was emphasising some aspects about Jesus' humanity and and, uh, his deity, so he traced um, that physical, natural line um, as well. Uh, The second thing I just want to address is in verse 17, uh, Matthew talks about 14 generations. And if you count them, you'll get a bit confused because there seem to be 13 generations in the first and third groups. Um, That's because he sort of alternated between counting, including the first name or not, uh, which seems a bit weird, but it was, like, acceptable in that day. Like, it seems weird to us, but it was acceptable then. Uh, and, And so he went with 14 generations... Uh, perhaps uh, an indication of double uh, seven, the perfect timing, I guess, uh, or could be to do with David. Uh, if you sort of take D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, V is the sixth, um, so David, DVD, four, six, four, add them together, you get 14. Whatever the reason is, though, um, and now we're going to start getting into the, the real meat of the passage, it's clear that Matthew was deliberately dividing the genealogy up into these three sections. Um, And I want to sort of look at them as three eras of Israel's history, um, and they're going to form our three points this morning. Uh, So let's launch into that first era, the era of promise and faith. Uh, Matthew starts there in verse 2 with Abraham. Uh, Now, I kind of found that a little bit odd when I started studying this. Like, where would you say that the story of Jesus really begins? Yeah, you'd think either Adam and Eve, or you'd think uh, maybe the start of Jesus' birth, like Luke says, or or before the creation of the world, like John says, Um, uh, or the start of his ministry, where, where Mark starts. Why do you start with Abraham? Like, it's not even the start of any sort of book of the Old Testament. What's so special about Abraham? Uh, Well, we read uh, earlier, uh, Steve read to us, that Abraham is sort of where the start of uh, of God's salvation plan dealing with Israel uh, really begins. Uh, It goes back to that passage we read before. Uh, where 
God blesses Abraham and makes these sort of grand promises to him. Uh, Verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and all, sorry, in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. Uh, that, that last uh, bit of that promise there, I really want you to remember that this morning. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, the two passages that we had read out to us this morning are sort of two promises which are really key um, to follow uh, throughout the Bible and, and especially key um, to this passage be, being about, uh, or Jesus being related to David and Abraham. Uh, and this is a really key promise because it uh, it has really wide-reaching implications. I mean, you can sort of understand that from it from the the verse itself. All the families of earth. That's that's a global scope. Uh, Abraham was, of course, the ancestor of the Jews, and the Jews sort of looked up to him as that. But the, the, that doesn't mean his story is limited to just Abraham's descendants. Abraham's blessing reaches across the earth. Uh, now, the significance of the blessing um, is really important because it, it comes off uh, the back of a number of curses that, that we're introduced to in Genesis. Um, we sort of brought these curses on ourselves as humanity because of our sin. Uh, we're, uh, we're cursed uh, to, the, to the loneliness of broken relationships with God and with each other and... Uh, and um, uh, uh, and we're cursed to uh, live and work and procreate as humans uh, in futile, uh, fighting against decay and, and death in, in nature. Uh, we're cursed to a degenerate sinfulness in, in our um, spiritual state. We're cursed to sickness and, and death, um, all sorts of mental and physical infirmities. It's just going to get worse through our lives until we die in misery. Uh, we're cursed to suffer the just punishment of God, who is patient and yet wants to see the total eradication of evil. And that's uh, what, there was a foretaste of that in Noah's flood in Genesis. We're cursed to be a fractured race. Uh, Abram's calling comes just off the back of the Tower of Babel, where humanity is cursed to be fractured, divided by language and, and race. Now, of course, it wasn't always this way. God created us to be a blessed people. Uh, but we brought these curses on ourselves because of our sin. But in Abraham, or in Abram, and, and those who would uh, inherit this blessing, uh, there is this promise of blessing, blessing that is available to all around the world all the families of earth, the blessing of peaceful relationships with God and each other, the blessing of fulfilling work of whole body perfection or of reward for good deeds uh, and the blessing of unity across racial divides. Uh, now, in these first six uh, or five and a half verses, this first era, we start to see these blessings being fulfilled already or a little, a little hint at it. Uh, because there's three women noted in this section. Uh, Tamar, 
Rahab and Ruth. And these are really surprising people that Matthew would choose or pick out to, to include in this genealogy. Um, especially, uh, 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 I find Tamar really shocking. Like, she's one of the, uh, the, the story of Judah and Tamar is one of the, the ickiest stories in all of scripture. She was a, um, a Canaanite, so she shouldn't really have been part of this, this nation anyway. They were supposed to marry, uh, within their race. Uh, she wasn't a descendant of Abraham. Uh, but more importantly, the, the ickiness comes uh, because as Judah's daughter-in-law, she tricked Judah into impregnating her by dressing up as a prostitute and seducing him while he was away on business. It's just a messed up story. Um, and that's how the, the twins Perez and Tamar that he mentions in verse 3 came about. And it just beggars belief that Matthew would would even hint at such a such a gross and, and disturbing story. And that's the point. The, these three women in this section, the, the impregnation of Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, uh, she was a Canaanite and a prostitute. Uh, Ruth in verse 5 was also a Gentile from Moab. Matthew's making the point here He's choosing three Gentiles, uh, two of whom were known to have lived in sexual immorality, and he says these are the these people are, are welcomed into the blessing of Abraham. They, uh, in spite of their status as outcasts, in spite of their scandal, there is no denying that God has used each each one of these women to bring about His kingdom purposes. They are literally ancestors of Israel's king. They are the peop- They are literally people through whom God is bringing His kingdom. What an amazing demonstration of God's grace that He would uh, bring in these these Gentiles, these uh, notorious sinners, I guess, um, that uh, to uh, to bring about His purposes. Uh, and demonstrate that Abraham's blessing reaches far and wide. Uh, No matter how outcast or or perverse or immoral their families or even they themselves are, Abraham's blessing is for all the families of earth. And in fact, it demonstrates, of course, that people like us, who are uh, about as far away from Israel as it's possible to be, um, who may have done all manner of perverse things in life, we can still experience these blessings of God. If we believe in Jesus, uh, we can be welcomed in, uh, regardless of, of who we are or what we've done, we can find forgiveness in Him. Uh, and just like those women, uh, not just incorporated into God's people, uh, but even into uh, the, the saving work of God in the world, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself there because we haven't quite got to, got to Jesus yet. The section ends in the first half of verse 6 by uh, leading us to Jesse, the father of David, the king. And this is really a great place to end the section, I think. Like we sort of started on a high and now we're, we're even, like we're on an gr- even greater high. Uh, David was the great king 
uh, who really established the kingdom of Israel. He, he expanded the borders, he brought tremendous wealth to the nation, he made great efforts to lead the people in following God. And he brought about just a great golden age for the people of Israel. And, and that's especially what he's remembered for, uh, or was by the Jews. Uh, and, and of course, as we read before, God gave him a great blessing. Uh, in addition to, we started this era with the, the promise of Abraham, through you all the families of earth will be blessed, uh, and we end the first era with this even greater promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised to make one of David's descendants a king who would reign forever. Um, and you could put these, prom- these two promises together as well, that God would bless the world through a king descended from David who would reign forever. And this hope, this, these, this co- combination of, of great and glorious promises formed the hope of Israel for the rest of their history. And, and with each subsequent name on the list then, we've sort of got to ask, is this, is this the one? Is this the one who's going to be the king who reigns forever? That's, that's the hope that, that Israel were looking towards. Uh, and that leads us to this second era, the era of potential. But it's also the era of failure. Uh, because uh, when the, the previous section ended on that great high... Uh, with the, the great king and the great promises. The potential for greatness is enormous. The tension is palpable. What will happen next? Uh, and then we look at the rest of verse 6. We see that David has a son, Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Here, of course, David is drawing our attention to this terrible story of David and Bathsheba. The story where David committed adultery with Bathsheba uh, and then tried to cover it up through increasingly desperate means uh, which, and then ultimately he orchestrated the death of her husband Uriah. Uh, unlike the women that Matthew has mentioned earlier, I don't think the focus here is supposed to be on Bathsheba. She's she is like the other woman, the other women, in that she's a Gentile and uh, and sexually immoral in that sense. Uh, but note that she's not mentioned by name. Matthew says she's the the wife of Uriah. This is sort of like the bare minimum that we need to identify her. Um, he focuses on he, he names her husband instead, the man who was most wronged by David's actions. The focus here is on David's sin in stealing another man's wife. Again, we ended the, the previous section on a great high with Abraham... Oh, sorry, we started the, the previous section on a great, on a great high uh, with Abraham and then marched upwards towards David becoming king 
Uh, and now all of a sudden this upward march of salvation history has fallen off a cliff. The great King David is a smoking wreck. Jesus' genealogy has a great, ugly, black stain in the middle of it. Potential has turned to failure and the story pretty much only goes downhill from here. When I was in Sunday school, I remember being taught that uh, Israel had good kings and bad kings. But most of the kings in Israel's history had good and bad aspects, if you sort of think about it really. Like Solomon, the very next king, uh, he's often remembered as a good king because of his wisdom and the the fact that he built the temple and uh, he wrote some psalms and a lot of the wisdom literature. But Solomon's legacy had as much to do with idolatry, uh, corruption, bleeding the people dry, the the division of the kingdom, uh, as much as, as it was the wisdom literature and the temple. And so... The, the way the Bible really uh, evaluates the, the kings, uh, at least in 1 and 2 Kings, is did they live up to the standard of David? Did they lead the people in worshipping God effectively or appropriately? And if they did that, did they surpass David and fulfil those promises that I talked about earlier that David never could? And, and here's why I say that this is an era of failure because most of the kings failed to even live up to the standard of David and all of them failed to fulfill those promises. The line of kings has failed uh, as as many people told Aragorn when uh, when he said that he was descended from the kings. The line of kings has failed This uh, again demonstrates to us the pervasiveness of the curse of sin. Even the greatest kings were stained by it and they all passed on this stained, cursed legacy to their sons. Uh, Jesus didn't inherit anything good from his ancestors except for the promises, really. Again, much like Aragorn that I mentioned at the start, his ancestors were much of the the evil and the corruption and the problems he had to overcome in life. Uh, Jesus came to sacrifice himself and break the curse that his ancestors brought on themselves by their sin. He came to break sin itself. And not just their sin, but the sins of anyone who laid hold of him by faith the sins of of all who would receive that promised blessing, the sins of you and I. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. The point of this section is that all of the kings failed to, to fulfill those promises and to lead the people in righteousness. They all sinned from the best of them to the worst. All of them refused to acknowledge God, at least sometimes. And that sin which they all committed, along with all of Israel, uh, led to God finally saying that they'd run out of chances. 
His patience finally ran out and he meted on them the curse that he said he had warned them, that he had warned them from the beginning of a bloody conquest and exile. And that's how this era ends. Uh, the era that had started at the greatest point with, uh, with Israel's greatest king, David, his, the golden age ended at the lowest point in Israel's history at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 11. After these, these more than 14 generations of widespread systemic corruption, God allowed the Babylonians to invade Israel, topple Jerusalem, and bring all of the remaining Jews into exile. The uh, might and prosperity of the nation were just history. The temple where they had met with God for centuries was no more. And even if it was standing, they they wouldn't be able to get there to worship God either. They had no homes, their possessions were limited to what they could carry uh, and now they were starting from scratch in a far-off land where they didn't even speak the language. Stripped of their land, their autonomy and their wealth, Israel were at their very lowest ebb. And this brings us to the third era, the era of poverty and fulfilment. Uh, Verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Uh, Now, Zerubbabel is a bit of an important name here. Um, If you uh, read the Old Testament, you'll see that uh, he's one of the leaders of the people as they go back uh, to Palestine from exile in Babylon. Uh, They went back to their homes, they rebuilt Jerusalem's walls, they rebuilt the temple, but they didn't really become a great nation again. They were still subject to foreign powers. Uh, at that time, they were a poor province of the Persian Empire, and then the Greek took over that empire, and, uh, and then they were uh, a Greek province. Um, then the Syrians and Egyptians, who inherited adjacent sections of the Greek Empire, uh, fought over the land of Israel for a bit. Um, And finally, by the time of Jesus, the Romans had come along and Palestine was a Roman uh, province, a particularly stubborn and rebellious one, but a a province nonetheless. Uh, And that lasted um, only a few decades after the time of Jesus uh, when the Romans got sick of their stubborn rebellion uh, and just finally destroyed Jerusalem permanently. Now, obviously, that happened after Matthew wrote, um, but... This is sort of the direction of history. Israel is is impoverished and they're only a few decades away from being wiped or from Jerusalem being wiped off the map. What's happened to the blessing of Abraham? Israel isn't even blessed by any real metric, let alone being a blessing for the nations. What's happened to the kingly line of David? Uh, the, the last king was deported to Babylon and now Israel has no king. Uh, they are only subject to foreign powers. David lacks a descendant who sits on his throne. What have happened to the promises that God had made? Did God's promises fail? 
there seems to be a lot more poverty in this era so far than fulfillment. Right? And these doubts gnawed away at the Jews as, as generations passed. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Mathen, Mathen fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Joseph. Ten generations of this, this subjection to foreign powers, plus all the ones that Matthew probably skipped. And yet the Jews didn't give up hope, or at least not all of them did. They still waited, looking for the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to, to, to David um, and however many other, like all the other promises as well. Until finally we come to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And, and here we finally see the fulfillment, the end that all of all that David has been driving at, the fulfillment of all that God has promised. Uh, Jesus means Yahweh saves. He is, is God's saviour who will undo the curse and bring those promised blessings on the world. Uh, he is the Christ, the anointed one, the, the king who will sit on David's throne forever. Someone has come to fulfill the promises that God has made to, Ab- to David and Abraham. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He has inherited these promises that God had given to his ancestors and he will finally fulfill them. Jesus is the eternal king who brings Abraham's blessings to the world. Uh, and that's exactly what we see. If you if you read on through Matthew, you see him uh, preaching that the kingdom of God has finally come, uh, and he brings real world, uh, uh, tangible blessings to the people of his day. Uh, but ultimately, we see that it's through Jesus' blood, his his death, uh, his blood shed on the cross, uh, which brings the greatest blessing uh, that the Old Testament promised the blessing of the new covenant, the blessing of forgiveness of sins. And finally, in Matthew 28, 18, the book closes with the assurance that the king has been crowned. As he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is king, he is the ruler who will sit on David's throne and his reign will never end because he is risen to life, having died and never to die again. Uh, in closing, I, let us, let's uh, think about the uh, this hymn we're about to sing. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Uh, it amazes me how many people sing that song around this time of year, and they don't really think about what it's saying at all. What do you mean, let earth receive her king? There is no king over all the earth, is there? No one wants there to be a king over all the earth. At least in our Western culture and in most of the world as well, democracy is considered to be the ideal form of government. People ruling uh, by voting in and out uh, people in authority. Uh, even as Christians, I'm pretty confident that most, that all of us 
uh, here wouldn't really want a, a human king to suddenly take over all the earth uh, and rule everyone with an iron fist, right? Uh, for, for there to be a king over all the earth goes against all the, the advancements in freedom we've made over the last few hundred years. It certainly wouldn't be good news that would bring joy to the world. And yet we sing this song with joy, with gladness. How do we do that? Why? Who is this king? Well, of course, as we've said this morning, uh, the king over all the earth is Jesus. In keeping with the promise made to David, uh, he doesn't reign uh, visibly yet. He will return to set up a visible kingdom over, over a renewed new creation. Uh, but he does reign now. All authority has been given to him. Uh, and that is joyful news for the world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Because in Jesus, all the families of earth are blessed in keeping with the promise that God made to Abraham. Uh, and that's what it means, again, that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is that king, that eternal king, who brings the blessings that God has promised on the world. Hallelujah. Joy to the world. Our Lord is come.